welcome to another episode of Conversation with a Chef. I'm Joe Ritty and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. I begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the lands and airwaves where this conversation takes place. Land which was never ceded. Land where communities came together to eat seasonally, locally and without exhausting resources. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and rising. Today I'm talking to Stephen Nairn at Yugen Dining. Stephen is the epitome of the passionate chef. His love for food, the industry, his team and for always learning more is palpable. I'd spoken to Stephen over the phone for Broadsheet when Yugen Dining opened and quite frankly, I was grinning like a lunatic on the other end of the line because I was just lapping up the way he described the dishes. He pointed out that when he says the menu is led by the five senses, that's not just a fluff statement. I doubt Stephen ever makes fluff statements. He's articulate and thoughtful, and I could have listened for hours. I learned so much. When he mentions a sensory approach, he's talking about identifying a range of ingredients he wants to work with, and then applying salt, acid, fat, umami, steam, charcoal, not so much to manipulate the flavour in order to change the ingredients, but to extract the most out of the flavour. For example, he says the depth of flavour in the drunken poussin on the Yugen dining menu sings from all the right notes. When I arrived to speak to him in person, we talked about our days, and I mentioned I was a teacher. Stephen comes from a family of teachers, but was himself drawn to cooking, and once in, could not get enough of it, starting in Glasgow and working himself up through the best restaurants there, then London, then New York and 11 Madison Park. He came to Melbourne intending to stay only two months and 10 years on he's worked for Shannon Bennett, Scott Pickett and is now LK Culinary Director of Yugen Dining, Yugen Tea Bar and Omnia Bistro and Bar. This was one of my favourite conversations and I can't wait for you to listen. Uh, as a business management teacher and a principal and my uh, dad was a, a history modern studies teacher and a headmaster oh, wow. and my mum was a primary school teacher and my brother is a mathematics teacher oh my goodness enough, so I know all the, the, uh, yeah. the challenges this is uh, you know a really difficult job not uh, Everyone thinks, oh, well, you get the holidays. I know, know people say that, but um, that's a perk. That's the perk of the job. That's the perk of the job, <laughs> but there's heaps of, uh, I'm sure, other challenges. Take a seat. Thank you. Wow. I always dreamed of sitting in the orb. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the famous orb. Thank you. Um, I'm really pleased to speak to you because when I spoke to you for the broadsheet article, the way you described the food was um, so amazing, like talking about the senses and all the umami and so on, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and wanting to get people back here and so on. So when um, Renata suspe- uh, su- suggested I speak to you, I was like, yeah. yes, <laughs> please. Excellent. And congratulations Thank on you. being a new dad. Are you a new dad or is it a... No, I'm a new dad. A I'm, new bre- dad. I'm, I'm, I'm a five-week-old dad. Wow. Yeah. How's that going? It's been been absolutely fantastic, as much as I you know um, hoped it would be, but um, not without its challenges. No, but but being you know really really awesome. Yeah, that's great. Very exciting, yeah. and um, it's a lot to juggle, isn't it, with um, all that you do here? Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty full on, and we're we're about to add another restaurant. So so we've got Omnia, um, we've got Yugen Tea Bar, yeah. we have Yugen. And we're about to add our event space, oh. which is literally on May, around May, probably May 2nd, May 3rd, May 4th maybe will be the when we open that up. So that's okay. another one that we've been working on for, for and, a while. And what's that for weddings and... Weddings, corporate. birthdays, some corporate, whatever you want. It's an amazing space. It's absolutely beautiful as well. Where is that? Upstairs. Yeah, right. Two floors up. Okay. Um... And yeah, I think that that'll be a nice little addition because we get a lot of requests for private dinners and things, but we just we just don't actually. Omnia doesn't have Omnia. You could you know we get we had we do some larger tables. We don't have anything that you know we, that entertains a lot of what we get re- the request for. So yeah, I'm I'm happy to kind of add that to our repertoire of restaurants. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
It's See? a lot. It's a lot. And but I feel like you've, you've been in so many incredible places mm. along the way. And then um, I guess the next challenge is to be overseeing something like this where you're executive chef and overseeing quite a few different restaurants. And they're different cuisines as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... You don't think that that's the way it's going to end up when you start off. You know, you think, but the climate changed dramatically. So you kind of have to adapt and take opportunities where you get them. And the path, the end goal is always, you know, you want to, you know, you, yeah, as you get more experience, you, you, the thing that you're, you realize the thing that you're actually in love with is transferable. You know, the restaurants is not just the really intimate fine dining, you know, 40 seats, one menu. There's also different, you know, there's something magical about Omnia as well. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing place to, as a young chef, to start off. And then it's a great place, you know, if you're, you know, I've got a great team up there. It's, it's, it's a different style of exposure to ingredients. So if you really love, like, um, you know, the connection between the, the nature and, you know, the, the producer, the grower, then bringing that full circle back into the kitchen. Like, having multiple different styles of restaurants is, you know, is very rewarding. Mm. And are you still on the tools? Yeah, 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 100%. <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously, obviously you have to balance it um, accordingly. Yeah. You know, like, if you've got a day like today where I'm chatting with yourself, you know, the, the day needs to be adjusted. Mm. Um, but... Um, then it's also you know there's there's a growing period you know for instance when you when you open a restaurant like Yugen, I'll have the head chef who who operates the actual the hot kitchen downstairs and I'll do the pass with him, mm. um, for, you know for the first three four months to to under, to basically, you know give them the training that they need get over the really hairy intimidating pieces where it's you know when you're dealing with everything from, um you know gone from the big jumps of covers you know you don't do 200 covers right off of the bat no. you'll maybe start at 120 and 130 then when you start really refining the menu showing them how to 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 operate under different levels of pressure how to reorganize the kitchen how to handle mistakes mm. how to um these are all the key principles but then after after a period of time you have to you have to step back and allow them to flourish otherwise you're just kind of micromanaging them mm. and then it moves to the point of they're really running the day-to-day -day of, of the kitchen and i am then saying right okay let's start working on this dish mud crabs are coming in season it's you know i need you to you know free up yourself five hours of on wednesday which might sound like nothing but that's a huge difficulty when at the start you're just completely scrapping to be set for service. Mm. Whereas now, I'm, you know, then the, the relationship is different with your head chef where you're saying, let's work on the dish together. You know, this is how I want to cook it. What do you think? Have you cooked it? And then it's very collaborative. Mm. But at the same time, it's a full mentorship process. Whereas I'm always trying to make sure that we're staying true to our original vision with the restaurant. Mm. And, you, you, you know, at the same time, giving them what they want, which is... To, to work next to me to and to understand um, how to get to the next level of a chef. So you know, there's different kinds of on the tools. You know, when you when you move to something like what I do, when you're actually running the businesses, overseeing the kitchens, you can't. If I'm standing, if the restaurants don't work without me filling the fish, portioning the you know the mud crab, mm. then there's a problem. Yes. Um, Whereas there's there's many many different aspects that you need to you know that require your attention, so it's a bit of a balancing act. But you know that that that's also just comes with experience. Absolutely, and I'm thinking as you're speaking, you must be so well organised to hold all those things um, in your head because you're thinking of different venues, and then you're thinking about the season that's coming and the mud crab coming in, mm. and what you might do with that, and who you're going to work with. Is that something you've learned over time? Or yeah, time no, that's working? definitely something I've learned over time. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't have the. I used to always be in awe um, from when I worked of the 
with you know when you're a chef to parties you know sous chef commie chef you don't really know what's going on you're just completing tasks and you know all of a sudden things are appearing chef to party you're becoming a bit more aware you know in the old you know i say the old days but 10 15 years ago this is my 20th year this year wow. 10 15 years ago you know you didn't just chop and change restaurants you know you stayed you worked that was you know you didn't leave uh, until you really you know you would be on the veg section for the for the four seasons mm. so you you understood that you know in autumn the mushrooms come in spring that you started to be aware of the game season starts here that you know you'd be aware of it but then as you as you get a little bit more experience you're developing supplier relationships so you're actually working very very closely for example prime example would be um the Tas- tasmanian uh sea urchin that's a product that I absolutely love. So I'm working with the the producer very, very closely um, because I'm tracking it month by month. I, in, in my office, I have a massive um, seafood chart that's, that's the same thing that they use at the Sydney Fish Market. So I can see months in advance. So I'll be talking to the supplier. Is it happening now? Six weeks behind. We're expecting it here. Okay, we're going to... It's this size at the moment and two weeks is going to be exactly what you want. Are you ready? then we're negotiating price and then now it's for instance I'll be whereas before I'd just be creating one dish for Omnia now I'll be saying okay we're we're going to go through this at Omnia you know we're going to go with the Irish muffin we're going to go with a brandy bavoir the sea urchin green granny smith apple and a sea urchin dew and then I'll be speaking to the sushi teams do you guys want some for your omakase do is this something you you feel that you can use I'll be speaking to the head chef downstairs are you how can we incorporate it so then I'm working with the farmer or the grower or the producer or the fisherman or you know whoever it is because I'm trying to buy it I'm trying to use as much if it's a hyperly small seasonal produce I'm trying to buy as much as, as I can and, and distribute it you know accordingly mm. and then you know the year one when I'm working with the head chef or the sous chef I will probably be providing the majority of the narrative. But then um, as the relationship grows, um, they will be then saying, hey, I know last year we done the sea urchin tart. What do you think about this? And I'll say, brilliant, let's let's go. Okay, you know, they'll say, do you have a, a recipe for this? How would you do this? Okay, no problem, I'll, I'll show you how I would do it, but I want to see how you're going to organise so in term, their skill level is increasing mm-hmm. and I'm really the, the soundboard and the mentor and I will then turn my attention to, okay, I'll talk with the SOM. I'll start looking at a beverage pairing. I'll start seeing if we've got enough time, can we go and get the, you know, can we bring this in? Do they still have this great sake? Do they have the, you know, is there any, is, how much of this particular product? And then hoping the following year they'll, they will be then coming to me saying, okay this is the dish this is what we're thinking will pair with it beverage wise really well we actually like to do it table side and then the restaurant is improving and improving and improving mm. and um, then really um, you know able to just provide that very fine minute detail as if I am the guest yeah does that require uh, longevity in staff. What you're talking about is yep. the people who are sticking around. Yeah, is it absolutely. easy to keep them in the state? It's this not easy climate? to no, it's not easy to keep them at all. But I have a, when you get to a certain level of chef, which you know sous chef and above. For instance, Evan Doherty is our head chef at Omnia. He's been with me for four years. Now there's a mutual level of respect. I have response. I have things that are, you know that are non-negotiable, and he he understands. Um, from a perspective non-negotiable of like the, the guests would suffer or we have to do this or this is because it stays in line but everything else is fully up to the, the speed and the development of, of where he's at and you know each as we build each skill level he then takes on another level of responsibility at his own pace mm-hmm. and the mutual level of, of understanding and respect is there whereas I'm not micromanaging I'm not you know, shouting, screaming and shouting in front of, you know, of the boys. I'm literally saying, hey, I've noticed this. I think we could do this. Or he's coming to me saying, I really want to do this. How, how do you go about it? So the, the, there is the, it does require longevity, but that's all on the, all on the, the chef. They need to have the maturity to understand that they're getting an opportunity that they won't get in an, 
they're not getting hung out to dry whereas someone you go and you might take another job somewhere else but you know are you going to have the access to the resources that we are offering here i highly doubt it are you going to have um the long you, you know are you going to have the are you going to be in the kind of arena where you can make the mistake and someone else is going to come and help you through through the process that's a massive attribute when you're a head chef yeah. uh, when you're learning the ropes because when the time comes you're going to go and do something else or whatever it be um you you want to have made the mistakes with me as opposed to going out and you know on your own it's going to be a going to be a challenge so it's a mutual level of trust and respect and that's the same in all of the restaurants you know there's not um it's different with 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 certain certain people depending on their skill and their experience but i i would say it's more a collaboration than longevity and then i think when you get to a certain level of of chef you've been in the ring long enough that you can see that what we have at omnia and yugen our event space or production kitchens or pastry department it's not this it's very rare to see that in in australia something much more commonly found overseas it's almost like a hotel set up without a hotel um and i promote them above myself um i'll push them hard um to get us to the end goal but they they the ball is in their in their court and i think that some people relish under that opportunity and of course some people don't like them mm. um but that's natural mm. so yeah it's um it's a two-way it's a two-way relationship absolutely and did you have a mentor or mentors along the way like you yeah absolutely yeah i did the first chef i worked for was a guy called brian mall he was the chef of gavroche you know big two michelin it was three michelin star then uh he was the chef there for 14 years um so he left and opened his own restaurant in my hometown, Glasgow. And I started there when I was like 15, 16. And I was there for best part of six years. So, I mean, I went from um, apprentice to um, commie, first commie, demi-chef, chef de party, junior sous-chef, sous-chef. And then I left. Um, and he, he, that's what he, you know, had, it was very, very, you know, he was a great mentor in some aspects, um, you know, but very old school in some aspects in terms of the, you know, I loved the screaming and the shouting, but that was part of the criteria back then. But in terms of like just handling products, he that he, he showed you, that, you know, there was true respect long before you know waste and sustainability was fashionable. There was not we didn't waste anything there. Um, every single scrap was either refashioned or turned into something else. But it was a very difficult and grueling place and then so I learned the rigor of hard work from him as a mentor and then I left there and took my first kind of sous chef position in restaurant number one which is a one Michelin star restaurant um, and the chef there Craig Sando he was like just a phenomenal chef but just an amazing amazing teacher um, you know a very kind strict um but an excellent craftsman, but very kind and with his time and had a very gentle approach that was completely opposite to what I'd learned, you know, with, with Brian. But both just absolutely, you know, key markers in, in um, learning. And then when I went to New York, you know, James Kent was another uh, fantastic mentor. Then in Melbourne, obviously, Shannon Bennett and Scott Pickett, two, two fantastic chefs. But then you... you you find other mentors that are not necessarily the chef or the boss. Um, you know, I worked with loads of amazing different guys like, you know, Davy Hall, um, uh, Brian Lockwood, and, you know, um, even just guys that are still on my team right now, you know, Samuel Holman, uh, John Demetrius. These guys are, are necessarily, you know, maybe not, you know, um, you know the big the big chef but they're they're great they're, they're fantastic people that you're learning off with you know you're learning constantly i'm still learning right now mm. but in terms of mentorship though i think those early chefs are are really going to install you know if you don't understand the value of of produce and seasonality and how to handle things then you go into something like a three-star michelin restaurant you're going to get you know it's not going to work yeah. you're going to get exposed really really quickly or you you know i would imagine that you you might find a role but you you're not going to be active in service you're not going to be cooking um if you don't understand how to handle things how to portion things how to 
respect ingredients, how to work cleanly and organised, how to be presentable, how to, um, you know, show that you're a professional as opposed to maybe coming in hungover and, you know, not being able to give your, 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 um, give your, your, you know, a hundred percent. I think those early guys that I worked for, they definitely installed that hard work and rigor, um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. It absolutely does. Yes, it does. And so you come from a family of teachers. Mm. What made you think about becoming a chef? School wasn't for me. I don't think I was a bit of a renegade, a bit of a bit of a bad boy. Um, just more of a cheeky chappy as opposed to anything too bad. But I, <laughs> you know, I loved to wind up. I loved the, you know, I loved to um, getting out there. And I literally, I. Um, Left school at fifteen in the summer, and then I just took a job as a kitchen porter just to get some extra, you know, to get some cash under the belt and a bit of independence, and to show that I was actually trying to do something. I didn't even have a clue about, you know, I liked food, you know, I liked eating, but I, you know, I was, you know, uh, but I didn't, I, I, I had no idea about the world of, you know, chefs and Michelin stars, and you know, I had absolutely no clue. I worked for an amazing Indian chef. Uh, a guy called Nitin Sharma and um, and a guy called Barry uh, two Indian guys and they so they were, got me in a, you know they could see that like shit this guy actually likes working I think you need to to be a good chef you need to actually like working you need to be not afraid of graft work hard work with this thankless work in the early early days they then said to me you know do you want to uh, do you want to uh do a day or a few hours here or there in the kitchen. This is like the most basic of basic stuff. Then, you know, I'd done that and then I was kind of enjoying it and then they both collectively said to me, like, pulled me aside and they were like, look, you, if you really want to be a chef, you got to get out of here and you got to go and work at a top place. Otherwise, it's like, it's, it's a terrible job. They were like personally saying that because they were, they had left India um, and came to Scotland purely for financial reasons and to try and provide some income that they wouldn't be able to get in their home country for their families. Very admirable kind of sacrifice that these guys were doing. But they were telling me, like, this is a brutal and there is a brutal game. When you get old, they were married, they had children, they so they knew what they were talking about. They were, And I, I could tell that what they were saying was, you know, they're, like, basically getting rid of their staff. Like me, who was the guy who was, like, you know, the, the grafter who's doing all the work, the cleaning, the, the, you know, you know, the deep cleaning of the, fr- all the, you know, bullshit that they, guys like them don't really want to be doing. So they pointed me in the direction. I literally like Googled like best restaurant in Glasgow and the one guy came up all the time, Brian Mall, went to him and it was an absolute reality check for, you know, he was like, yeah, you're a blank canvas, you know, you probably last a month. So, you know, do you want it? It was, um, it was three three pounds ten an hour, oh. and he was like, "I'm not, I can't give you an hourly rate, but you know, I can give you a salary." It was seven thousand pounds a year what? pounds. That was oh. in two thousand, uh, I think two thousand and six. Wow! So it was like absolute like peanuts. And mm. um, but then I like got got in there, and then like I had no idea that there was like grown, you know, men and women that this is like their full time job. I didn't understand that you you know what what um that level of like you know that you know that i didn't even know what i just thought it was something on tv mm-hmm. and then i kind of like start after a few months of you know doing all the brutal jobs of the you know the deep the constant deep cleaning you know the picking cases and cases of 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 uh, spinach the you know peeling mirepoix vegetables like by the by the app like 50 kilo you know doing all the brutal brutal uh cleaning of jerolls just scraping like cases and cases of jerolls cleaning out the guts of all the game birds the snipe widget teal mallard grouse all that then i actually started to like go you know this is really i'm really enjoying this and then brian was like all right you you know that was after a few months he was like okay i can you now i know you're not a time waster i'm happy to you know take you on and and actually devote some time to you but it's going to be absolutely hardcore are you up for the challenge I was like 
I was only 16 so I had nothing to compare it to I was like let's do it and then you know the, the culture there was amazing it was like we worked we worked hard as hell but when you're like 16 and you know you're going out for drinks with the, the big guys at the end of night is like unbelievable you know you're we would do like you know 18 hour days then go to the pub have 5-6 pints go, go you know go out and come back to it it was amazing it was yeah. like so much fun um, and you're learning absolutely heaps and then next thing I know I, I started to really like take it deadly seriously I started researching and understanding you know when they, all the guys would be talking about the big names like Pierre Kaufman Nicola Dinas Marco Pierre White Gordon Ramsay you know then I would start to understand oh shit it's in Europe as well mm. you know all the big guys in France you know your your legends like Ducasse Robuchon Gagnier you know Paul Bocuse I started to like on my own spare time dedicate myself to you know it was only cookbooks it wasn't YouTube it was just you know you would buy the try and buy them or go to the charity shop and like get these books or the the other chefs would share the books then I started to like really like be completely addicted to reading um, and you know getting really into the Michelin kind of star then on my holidays but my chef would he would then set me up stages and I'd go on my on my annual leave and go and work in these places in London. London was like the hub of, of where it was at. And it was just yeah, you just next thing you know, you're like it's not actually a job, you're just in this constant pursuit of trying to get into these amazing places, whether it be eating in them or, or trying to get some a stage or some you know, or or you know, just any kind of exposure whatsoever. That sounds like such an amazing experience, but I imagine, as you say, it's hard graft, and to get to that point in, in that time, especially in um, Europe, yeah, <laughs> you don't have the, the eight hour or the working day. No, 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 that was, no that was that was absolute. That didn't that didn't exist. Yeah. So. But we didn't want it either. There was no point. No. Absolutely no. I never in my entire life ever heard the anyone in the the kit anyone even the guys that were married and stuff they didn't maybe it's because of the it wasn't an idea but it was either like you worked in the professional kitchens the ones that were ambitious that were had you know chasing the michelin stars and or you know or an offshoot of another one of the big chefs restaurant whether it be someone from london or whatever and then if that wasn't for you and you wanted something that was more you know approachable you just went and got a job that like they didn't have dinner service mm. it wasn't like you you know it wasn't like we should blend you know it was either you that yeah. was the landscape yeah but people you know from what i remember I, I was very happy doing that i loved it i used to it, it was, sounds like you loved it <laughs> yeah it wasn't it was difficult but it was um you're spurred on by ambition yeah. because you're like you you're you're fully bought into to you know you read those cookbooks and like yeah the recipes and the photos of the dishes are amazing but that's not what i actually loved i loved the like the, the first part you know sections of the book it was about the chef's story oh. um that was way more inspiring because then you're like oh fuck this guy's like the same as me yeah um and then you know obviously the the other thing that always spurred you on in those things was people looked down their nose at chefs even then there were our hospital especially front of house where we were, you know, they didn't understand it. So they're like, people used to always say to me, so what are you going to do for, what are you going to do for your real job? Oh. Um, so you had that, you know, you've, if you're an ambitious person, in your mind you're like, I'll fucking show you. Yeah, yeah. So, you, you know, I'll, I think there was a lot of that. But yeah, we were we were happy, happy doing that. Wouldn't, I wouldn't change a single thing about that for, you know, obviously there's certain certain things that are you know clearly um you know not best practice but that's the same of any job in any generation so we were we were really happy because we were just learning like how now i don't i'm sure if you were in other kitchens that weren't ambitious but it's, you know you're talking about just always getting this unbelievable produce coming in whether it was coming from scotland where whether it be the game you know game season where it was just immaculate shellfish and fish and you could see that the you know the the rigor and the process of the chef and you know and the sous chef trying to make the dishes with the general manager coming in and providing a little snippets of 
oh, you know, I'm concerned about that on the tasting menu. It might take too long to eat or we can't pair something with that or, you know, blah, blah. And all the little dramas that would happen in it, you were completely, like, bought in. At no point are you thinking it was a job. So I think that's maybe where that helped as well. Yeah, I just spoke to someone recently at the recreation and um, that's Roy North, Stephen, and um, he was saying that he worked in Edinburgh for a while, so he's from Australia, but he was oh, yeah. over there. And, uh, and just the level of produce was um, so impressive and that there are families that have been taking care of that particular thing, um, you know, got, dating way back. And we talk a lot about how great the produce is here, especially from Gippsland, but how does it compare to that? Oh, so the produce is completely and utterly different um, because, you know, completely different. And I don't think it's to compare it worse or better. It's, it's just like the produce, you know, for instance, you know, uh, I work very closely with with a, a asparagus and a, and a corn grower here in, uh, in Cardinia, John Hobson. Nice three generations of, he's 80, he was 83 weeks ago, still at the farmer's market. Now his corn, his sunrise corn, his baby corn is absolutely exceptional. The snow, he has snow corn as well. And, you know, that's a product that, you know, is comparable to what comes from France that I've had exposure to. But it's a very different style purely due to the climate and the way it's grown. Um, But you can't, you know, you can't, if you, sometimes in Australia and Victoria, will get morels, right? But you cannot compare the morels that you get here to the morels you get in, in Europe. Mm. Same with the black truffle. I, I think that there's been seasons here that we've had black truffles better than what I, I was getting from sometimes from Perigord. Mm. So I think the produce is very, very um, different, but it's all about how much effort are you, as the chef, going to put into dealing with the, the farmer mm. because they're very used to just not dealing with chefs who are hands-on on the product side of things and just shipping it into, you know, to Queen Vic Market or to the wholesaler and then the wholesaler dealing with the chef. But if you actually have the relationship, then, you know, I'm having... I get things grown especially for me. Mm. So that... that So, again, it's kind of like what... is how are you... You know, for instance, Mark Folletta, my, my very good friend and grower, his... Black Star cherries are better are better than the majority of cherries I've had in Europe. Now he, I take the full one hundred kilo harvest that he gets. So, you know, again, like I, we are working year on year, where he's saying to me, he will say to me, I'm not happy with this, with this particular, you know, um, flavor profile. I think that's because this happened. Next year, I'm going to, rem-. but I, I am, like just the soundboard to him of like oh yeah to let you know I've noticed that they um, they weep or they um, you know when the, when I am preserving them the flavour's not as concentrated as the previous year and I'm giving him this feedback now he's a winemaker by trade oh. so he he's making these adjustments it's very collaborative again so it's I think that the the produce this, in terms of is the produce in, in you know somewhere like Scotland just so much better. I think it's very difficult to to say that. And I don't. I don't actually agree with that. I think it just really, really depends on how much uh, work are you putting into your sourcing. Because if you, I've had things in Australia that are just absolutely exceptional and second to none. Of course. Um, like you can't tell me that Steve Folletti from Moonlight uh, Flat in Batemans Bay, one of the best oyster producers, you can't tell me that man's any less passionate than the best growers in, in Brittany? Well, no, absolutely not. And I think, too, it can sometimes be our own experiences, can't, yeah. can't it? It's the context that you have them in. And if you're not from that place, perhaps, too, and you're, and you're going and you've, you've known a certain thing. You know, I lived in the south of France for a year and, the, you know, everyone says the light is different in Provence. And I, um, I had friends who worked at the Marché d'Entrée Nationale, so they were where they were exporting all the best apricots and tomatoes mm. and eating the uh, eating an apricot from there was like eating sunshine yeah I, and I completely agree with that and especially in in like uh in provence there is certain things like but but i think that's the same you know we have regions here as well yeah like if you look at mildura produces yes. some absolutely incredible things if you you know 
I, if you look, look I, don't, I think something that would be a hard-pressed winner that would hands beat something down it would, would be something like berries and stone fruit. Now, when you get those kind of apricots like you're talking about in Provence that are like jam inside. Absolutely. You know, and that is like, because that's their, you know, it's their hero product. Mm. Um, but you would be able to, I'm pretty sure that if you source it hard enough, you can find these magical moments in Australia. And I think it's just literally about putting the work involved to actually get to, like, something that's a little less um, sexy would be potatoes. Mm. Now, I've got a Gordon Jones from Warrigal. I've, I've, this guy's grown, given me some potatoes before that are just, Scotland's famous for its potatoes, mm. um, especially in places like Blair Gowrie. Um Unbelievable but Joan, I've, I've had stuff from Jonesy that I'm like, fuck, that's mm. absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, so I think it's all, yeah, it's all tied to memory, sense of occasion. But when you're when you're a chef and you're working with the ingredient, that is very very different than just looking at something black and white. Because you need, I need to know how it performs, how it holds, how it travels. You know, what's its yield. These are all contributing to me saying this is a better grown area than over there. Now, when if I'm just making one pomana at home, that's yeah, you know whether or not the potato the potatoes are you know like in the style of rat potato or whether there's the the something like a Nicola. Now, at home I'm making one pomana. It's not so much of a problem. You buy two hundred kilos of potatoes at premium price per kg. Now, if 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 the the shape of the cut dramatically impacts the execution of the pomana for the restaurant team, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. But then, if you when you speak to the the grower, Jonesy, and I'll say, for instance, I'll say I want marble potatoes, and I'll I'll, I'll show them. I'll say, look, you know, on my computer, I have everything documented from all all my travels in Europe and and America, and I'll say, look, I want these. Look, these these here are, are like between are about 50 cent size and they're they weigh like five to ten grams and jonesy will say one in australia we don't have the machinery that when the potatoes are raked from the ground that these get trapped and two we can't pay anyone an affordable rate to pick them off of the ground whereas in europe that's a much different that's something very different someone will go on the paddock and pick them up whereas here he's telling me I don't have, I can't pay someone enough that means that you're going to buy them. Otherwise, I'm going to have to charge you $45 a kg. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's all these different economic challenges that come into the, you know, handling produce in restaurants. Yeah. These are, you know, conversations that people don't really see. No, well, that's right. And, I mean, you're in the business, too, of... Um creating all those Proustian moments of, you know, as I'm saying, like I remember that apricot and it was in the 90s, but you know, mm. like you're, cre- you're creating those moments every, every dinner service for people. And so you, that's, but I, I think it's interesting though, because I feel like you have to still be the, you have to be your kind of person where you're open to suppliers and they trust you with their product as well. Yeah. I think it's, as you say, it's so collaborative. Well, that, that, that takes a long period of time. Work, well, that's yeah. taken over 10 years to develop the network. Of, so wherever I go, these guys go. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, and that's the same for like ceramicists, you know, like, or it might be, you know, the cutlery guy, or it might be the, the guy who makes all the woodwork, you know, Oreo Randy. It might be, um, yeah, whether it's Andre Davidoff or Oreo Randy or you know whoever it is who I'll have some kind of collaborative thing where whenever I've got a new project I will always always give them the first refusal and say but I I give very little direction because when you get to know someone's work um, it's it's not as enjoyable to just say okay I need an uh, I need a, a a platter for afternoon tea it needs to be eight centimetres on the bottom then the next one up needs to be six and then that to me is not that awesome you know it's not like whereas what I would like to say is like this is how I would like the guest to access Mm. it's got to be lightweight I've got to be able to clean it and store it but apart from that it's totally up to you and then it it means that we are it's much more you know um, 
you know, fun for them and fun for me because it doesn't feel like it's, you know, just a random commission. Yeah. And New York must have been different again. Yeah, New York was, is, uh, yeah, is very, very different. Um, and, you know, I was relatively young to, to move to New York completely on your own with very little money. And was that just because that was the next big challenge? Well, yeah, because the thing was, I used to always do stages in um, in London. Mm. And I had an opportunity to go to Ledbury. And, it, you know, I'd staged there, I think, for a couple of weeks. And I thought, you know, I can always come back to Ledbury. But I can't get this, you know, I'd, there was something about the New York restaurants at that time that I just loved. Um, I mean, when I first, so that's, how, that's actually how I feel about it. So, when I first worked for that, that first chef, then we went and represented Scotland for a game dinner in New York. Uh-huh. So I was like 18 because the head chef couldn't go because he would have to run the kitchen in the, the big chef's absence. And I was like the next best guy who didn't have the big responsibility. So I managed to go there. But, you know, obviously I was going to get pasted for, for two weeks straight because I would be doing all the all the cooking well well the big man was out you know uh you know uh having fun with the other you know new york chefs but he took me there and like the expo i'd never been in a three star so i've been to multiple two star restaurants in in london but i'd never been to a three star michelin at that time danielle had a th- was a three star bernadam was a three star and jean george was a three star and the, this guy took me to all the all these restaurants just the culture the way it was how you know it was a completely different working environment it was way more you know uh regimented and uh professional in terms of like you know there was no rock and roll stuff going on there like there was in london london was absolute you know like the wild wild west where this was a little bit more professional in terms of it felt more um don't want to say it felt like there were yeah it was much more of a workplace whereas the in london it was like you know you, you get in and we you know you you just bang bang tools until you until you get it until you get the job done and then i just absolutely loved it and then and i met a, a, a big chef over there a guy called jason and he he was like me he was an english guy and he was like don't go to London, go to New York because you, you won't get, there was this J1 visa. He was like, it's much easier to get this if you're under 25. And he was like, get this visa because um, you can go to London when you come back, but you can't, you won't get this visa when you're over 25. They look unfavorable to chefs mm. uh, if you're over 25. So I was like, that's a good point. That other guy who was the great teacher, Craig Sandal, he he had decided that he was going to leave the the one Michelin star place that I was working, which was like massive for me because I was absolutely gutted. I absolutely loved him, um, and I knew I was like, I'm not going to like go through this with a new chef coming in. There's nothing wrong with a new chef coming in, but I'm, I'm I went to work in that restaurant because I heard this guy was an amazing teacher and he was patient. Whereas the other environment that I was in, it was like. The minute you made one wrong incision into a fish, it was like, you fucking... You know, it was chaos. Yeah. Whereas this guy would... For instance, this guy, um, Sandal, would be like, oh, have you ever, you know, boned out a suckling pig? And then I'd say, oh, no, I've not. Um, and then he'd go, okay, next Friday, you know, you're off. But come in, come and meet me at seven o'clock in the butchery. And then there would be like three suckling pigs. He'd spend like five hours showing you this is this is how if you're going to prepare it like this this is what you it was like in so i was like dedicated to that guy and because he was you know he was so he was kind um so anyway uh when he decided he was going to leave i'd had the exposure to to new york and then i decided i'm going to just write a letter to or an email i wrote some letters and some emails to all, all the, the top kitchens and you know obviously i live in madison park danielle gene george all these and then EMP was the one that I wanted because that was like modern as hell. The presentation, they had a great website. They had these videos where Chef Hume was like doing, you know, all different kinds of techniques. And then they 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 wrote me a letter and said, uh, they sorry, replied to my email and said, yep, come to, uh, <gasps> if wow. you, we'll give you a trial. We can't guarantee you anything, but just come for a trial. So I just, you know, it, it was literally like 1500 bucks for or pounds for the accommodation and the flight. That was like everything I had. So I just rolled the dice, went in, I had a 
I think I had two day, I had a two day trial. First day was just like you know, skills assessment and putting you through the rigor. And the third day, you had, uh, second day, you had to cook a dish against someone else. And the other guy was from French Laundry, so I was like, absolutely bricking it because I was like, shit, there's no way I'm gonna get get chosen over this. But then James James Kent, who's now gone on, he's got his own. He's got one star called Crown Shy and a two star called uh, Saga. Um, he he gave me the opportunity and said, look, if you, we, we can help you, we can sponsor you, but you need to get the visa, um, but we'll give you the job. But then that was it. I, I made the call, rolled the dice. I'm going to New York, saved up every single thing. Luckily, I had a friend who he knew a guy I'd never met in New York. He said he could put me up for three days. So I had three days to find an apartment. And... Um, yeah, I got uh, I've got an apartment. Luckily, when I made the move in in Harlem, uh, which was uh, you know is an upper upper west side, um, and luckily I got got a room in there for like, um, and yeah, managed to just get my head down and get that year long J one visa, and that was it. But a completely different environment to to what I was used to. It was extremely organised on another level super every avenue of Olive Madison Park was just filled with passion from the from the front of house to you know to the Psalms to the the office team to the marketing people to the chefs to the kitchen porters it was just a complete professionalism which was just amazing and, and very inspiring I saw a documentary or there was something yeah it was like the making was... of when they did they done the refurb was it yes and yeah. it was just like choreography watching them all work together how big is the staff I don't know what it is now that's you know that's gone on 10 years since I was there but it will when I was there we had well over 40 chefs and well over 50 60 front of house well you'd have to be organized yeah, you need to, you definitely need to be you need to be organised because the the workload that we had there, you know, if you were to run in a section there, not you know just a prep a prep guy, which some guys start in the prep prep team and then they'll make their way to the sections. But luckily, I, I got on cooking straight away. Um, you know, the the mise en, what we you know we call the mise en place list there is, you know, you would not be able to give that to people these days. It would you know you would probably. People, they would be saying that that was a mental health challenge, I think. It was just absolutely enormous amount of work. Um, but, you know, and you had a very short space of time to prepare it, and everything was made from absolute scratch every single day. Uh, it was just incredible. And we'd done a lot of covers, you know, we'd done over 150 covers then. So, yeah, that was, that was New York, an eye-opener. But just filled with, not just for those fine dining moments, like, you know... You, just exposure to Mexican food, great burgers, barbecue, yeah. and, you know, smoking, um, amazing bar culture, phenomenal pizzas, mm. um, you know, old school hospitality, that kind of very romantic sense that Americans have with how they deliver things. Um, and just, you just, just have an amazing arts culture that they've got there, like just from street performers to museums, it's just an unbelievable place to live and, and learn. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I still reference huge amounts from my time from my time there. Amazing. I had a few days in New York, but it was a few years ago, and there was an Arctic um, storm, so it was largely covered in snow. Oh, right, so yeah. Kind of dampened things for a while. But um, so then, what did you come to Melbourne after that? I did. I went back to I went back to Scotland for for three months because my actual now wife. But at the time when I went to New York, she actually didn't get a visa. So we were apart for, you know, whatever it was, 12, 15 months. And I went back for three months just to, you know, woo her, win her back. Um, I then, she wanted to travel, but to, deep down I had no intentions of traveling. I, when you come out of a restaurant like I Love Madison Park, you're really only wanting to continue learning. And so I, I was happy to, you know, go to Melbourne for a little bit. And then, you know, get back, you know, get to somewhere else that was a big name. So I thought I would only be in Melbourne for six months. Um, but uh, that's like nearly 10 years later. Yeah. And is it the people and the the venues that have kept you here? The lifestyle as well. Um, it's very different to the UK and Scotland. Um, but you know, like, I've, been, I've, I've, I've taken some big risks and had some big opportunities. So I've kind of things have kind of worked out in a way that I didn't actually imagine 
Um, I then have slowly just kind of, be- it's just became home. Um, and now I've got like, you know, a terrific, you know, team um, that I've been working with. Some of the guys I've been working with for nearly eight years um, and I have, you know, a great group of, of friends out with, uh, you know, the hospitality industry. And I just, I just, you know, Melbourne, I just, I just absolutely love it. Um, so now I, I just couldn't see myself going anywhere else, you know, it'd be very, very difficult, but it, it creeps up on you. Um, you know, you don't, you're not thinking that, you know, when I was, when Shannon uh, convinced me to stay longer than six months at Voudemont, I literally thought, I was like, ah, you know, I'll do an hour three months and I'll be out of here. I'll be in Sydney. Uh, I'll do six months in Sydney, then, you know, then I'll hopefully I'll get to, uh, back to France because I actually had a great opportunity at Twagro and I, 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 you know, was kind of thinking like, ah, you know, I'll do this like sabbatical for a year then I can get back to the to the real stuff. But then, then like when I, you know, I loved Voudemont, absolutely loved it. And then I thought, you know, after Voudemont, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a crack and try and open a restaurant in, in Melbourne because Melbourne's an amazing hospitality scene. Um, and it had, you know, I think at that time, the kind of emergence of not just the wine bar, but these kind of smaller uh, restaurants, which is, I, I, um, you know, which sounds odd because I, I have, om, you know, I do Omnia. <laughs> yeah. But those smaller, more humble restaurants, I absolutely love. Um, those more, you know, under the pro, you know, less, you know, um, heavy duty I thought you know what there's actually a good space here that I might actually have the opportunity and time to to get one of uh, uh, get a venue like that um, and then you know you know, you know it's the the lure of the you know the, the the big challenge kind of sucks you back in next thing you know you're like on a massive journey like like this well, I think lucky for Melbourne. <laughs> Melbourne's been very good to me, so I'm, I'm forever in its debt, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. It'll be perfect. All right, excellent. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with a Chef with Stephen Nairn at Yugen Dining. You can check out so much loveliness on Instagram at Yugen Dining. That's at Y-U-G-E-N Dining, or one word, and Omnia Bistro, O-M-N-I-A Bistro, again, all one word. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear about some other chefs, I'm on Instagram at Conversation with a Chef. You can read the chat at www.conversationwithachef.com. And of course, you can follow me on Apple and Spotify podcasts. I'd love it if you told a friend about these chats. And thanks again for listening. Have a great day.